It was Ralph Waldo Emerson, a great writer, that spoke of some of the greatest men and women of history who were misunderstood. And he named Jesus in it and Socrates and a host of others whom the world knows who were misunderstood. In fact, he concluded by saying, to be great is to be misunderstood. And if you've ever been misunderstood by another person, you know how difficult of an experience it is. Because there's no defense for it. You don't know where the people got their information, or rather misinformation, and there's no defense. You can't defend yourself. They often don't come to you to get it straight. They just misunderstand. And it seems that if you do try to defend yourself, it gets worse. You dig yourself in deeper. That's why I've always believed that God should be our defense. And I firmly believe that if you seek to defend yourself, God will let you. If that's what you want, God will let you. But I find in so many cases, I don't have to defend myself. If I'm walking in the integrity of the uprightness of my heart before God, who really cares what other people think? It really doesn't matter. Now, in some cases, it does matter. If you're yoked with that person in life, then you need to resolve it. You just can't have a hands-off. Get out of here if you don't understand. You really do need to work through those things. But it's true. To be great is to be misunderstood. Or maybe we should say to be used by God in any capacity, no matter who you are, is to be misunderstood. Now, if you don't want any flack, if you don't want any persecution, if you don't want any misunderstanding from anyone, then do nothing. Hide yourself away and be anonymous. Hang up or hang out. Show up. You know, don't get involved in anything and people won't know who you are and won't have a chance to take a pot shot at you. But do anything at all for God and you can expect some kinds of problems. David. Talk about a misunderstood character. Remember David one day got up went to the camp of the Philistines. His brother was there, but this giant of a man came from the other side named Goliath, and everybody was afraid of him. And David said, Why are you guys so afraid of him? Don't you trust the Lord? And his brother said, Hey, get out of here, man. What are you trying to do? Show up and look at the battle? You should be out watching sheep. And so he went into Saul and said, Saul, it seems like everybody here is afraid of Goliath. I'll fight him. You can't fight him. You're just a kid. Hey, I fought lions and bears before. And the God who delivered me from the lion and the bear is able to deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. He's no match for God. You think he's a big match for me and he's too much for me, but I'm looking between him and God. God can out him just like that. Let me at him. Well, you know the story. David beat Goliath. He went on to become a warrior in Israel. In fact, Saul sent him out because he was jealous of him into many battles. Every battle that he went to, God gave him strength and he won. So a popular song was being circulated around Israel. And the lyrics went, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Now David didn't write that song. He wasn't looking for glory. He wasn't looking for anything at all except to be faithful to God and faithful to Saul. But David received something that Saul wanted, and that was glory, adulation, attention. He wanted people looking up to him, and because they were looking to David, he misinterpreted it, and he became jealous, and he misjudged David, and misunderstood David, thinking, David wants to rip off the kingdom for me. 
And during that time, scholars tell us that he wrote a couple of psalms. One of them is Psalm 140. Maybe you can feel the emotion behind these words. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Protect me from men of violence who plan to trip my feet. Proud men have hidden a snare for me. They have spread out their cords of their net, and they have set traps for me along my path. I am certain that Paul the Apostle, if he had a copy of the book of Psalms during his missionary journeys, was probably meditating on that because he was experiencing the same thing. In fact, it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who, in his list of greats who were misunderstood, included the Apostle Paul. In this section of chapter 21, you will find that Paul is misunderstood, first of all, by Christians, and second of all, by his Jewish enemies. In this scene, Paul returns after three missionary journeys back to Jerusalem. He's a veteran now. He's not a young believer. A lot of water has gone under the bridge. On his body, he bears the marks of suffering, several times being beaten for his faith. But he went to Jerusalem, even though he was warned, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. If you do, they're going to lock you up. In fact, Agabus, on the way back as he went from Ephesus and sailed to Tyre and Ptolemais and down to Caesarea in Jerusalem, along the way he met a prophet named Agabus. And Agabus was kind of a demonstrative fellow, took his belt and wrapped himself in it. And as he got everyone's attention, said, The man who owns this belt will be chained when he gets to Jerusalem. Of course, he was talking about Paul. And all the people said, Paul, don't go, please. Paul said, I'm going, man. In fact, back in verse 13, Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we see saying, well, the will of the Lord be done. Any faithful disciple of Jesus Christ wants to please Jesus Christ. He's devoted to God. In fact, his personal comfort at that point becomes less important than pleasing God. Even if it means pain, he'd rather please the Lord than live a life of no suffering at all if he would be out of the will of God. Because a Christian understands eventually that there's nothing quite like living in the center of God's will and doing what God wants you to do. Nothing can match that experience, that feeling, that walk, and that relationship with God. And so Paul, like Jesus, said, Your will be done. And finally the disciples agreed, All right, hey, the will of the Lord be done. In verse 15, he goes to Jerusalem... Remember, he has taken an offering of the Macedonian churches for the poor people, the Christians in Jerusalem. And he brings the gift. And we are told, And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. I know that I am digressing as I share this, but I've got to, because to me it's beautiful. Notice in verse 15, it says he went up to Jerusalem. If you have a map or you followed this on a map in the back of your Bible, you will notice that Ephesus is northeast, northwest, and Paul went down to Tyre, and from Tyre, which is modern-day Lebanon, he goes down to Jerusalem. Even from Caesarea, geographically, he goes down. Now, that's how we talk. 
when we speak of going somewhere. Uh, we usually say, I'm going up to Denver. I'm going down to El Paso. Because we look at things in terms of their latitude. And uh, going up is going north. And going south is going down. But in the Bible, you notice that it's very different. They do not talk geographically. They talk topographically. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, I don't care. Well, you will in a moment. They looked at things in terms of elevation. Jerusalem is about 3,000 feet above sea level, Caesarea sea level. So going from Caesarea or Tyre to Jerusalem, you're going to be going up. We don't think of it as going up today because we don't walk it like they did in those days. We take an airplane or a car and we don't notice the terrain. On foot, you'd notice it. You're going up to Jerusalem. But even in the Scripture, if you were on a higher plane... In elevation, in topography, even Mount Hermon, which is over 10,000 feet in elevation, you'd still say, I'm going up to Jerusalem. Because in the Bible, you not only go up topographically, but spiritually. And to a Jew, when you go to Jerusalem, you're always going up spiritually. No matter where you've come from. Even if you've left a nicer home, you're going up because you're coming to seek the Lord. And the Jews still to this day speak about going to Israel as the Aliyah. They're going up because they're going for spiritual reasons, not just fleshly reasons. And so they went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them one Nason or Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And verse 17 tells us, And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. By the way, it seems as though the head, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, is not Peter, it's James, the brother of Jesus and the writer of the epistle of James. He seems to be the man in charge, the chief servant, if you will. And through the Holy Spirit, he will give direction and he'll confer with the elders. But it's not Peter who is the first leader, but James. In verse 20, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That is the law saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took the men the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. 
Now there seems to be legalists behind the scene who had heard rumors of Paul's ministry. And they were worried about him. Now keep in mind, these legalists were Christians. you got to remember that next time you meet a legalistic Christian. The kind who is scornful and points fingers and uh, figures that he's holier than you are. Keep in mind, as hard as it is, you've got to be patient with those babes in Christ. They think they're more mature, but they're babes. And they'll point the finger at you, but they're believers, many of them. And I know it's hard to have patience with legalists. In fact, I do the least well with people like this. I find it very difficult to be around traditionalists and legalists of any sort who want to put God tightly within a box with a huge chain on it. But uh, they're around, and they were around also in Paul's day. Paul came to Jerusalem, gave his state of the ministry report, gave it in detail. They were all excited about it. However, a rumor had come up, and as you know, though a rumor has no leg to stand on, it travels fast. And it traveled in Jerusalem. And it was about what Paul was telling Jewish people as he traveled to Gentile territories. Remember, Paul had gone out to be the apostle to the Gentiles. They were excited about that. What they weren't excited about is what they thought Paul was telling Jewish Christians along the way. Of course, the rumors were false, as we find out. The rumors concerning Paul were the same rumors spoken about Jesus, interestingly enough, And Stephen, of those two, as well as Paul, they said, he is forbidding us to keep the law of Moses. He's telling us to follow something different. He's negating everything we and our forefathers have worked for. Of course, we know that's not true. If you've been with us in the book of Acts so far, we know already that Paul himself took a Jewish vow a few chapters back. A few chapters back, Paul took Timothy and had him circumcised. And then... Titus, though he was a Greek, he forbid him to be circumcised, but for different reasons. So Paul wasn't against the law. Um, You notice in this section that there is not one word concerning Gentile believers. They didn't care if Paul preached to the Gentiles. It's what he was saying to Jewish people. You see, the Gentiles had already been settled back in Acts chapter 15. But the Jews were uptight Because they had heard that Paul was saying, don't circumcise your kids. Uh, You don't have to keep the Sabbath. Forget about the customs of Moses. Do your own thing. And they had heard about the grace that he preached. And they thought, well, Paul, what he means by that is you can do anything you want. There's license to sin. They misunderstood his message, as many people still do today. These legalists who brought the rumor were believers But they still held on to Jewish customs. Trying to figure out the best way to put this. For Christians like you and I, um, non-traditional Christians in a non-traditional church atmosphere, who have perhaps come from a traditional church growing up, we expect those traditional denominationalists to support us and to endorse us as being true believers. And just because we don't worship in robes or stained glass, we want to convince them, hey, we're we're brothers, we love Jesus. And yet for us, we're very narrow about accepting them. Oh, we want their acceptance of us, but I don't know if I can accept you. But according to Paul, you had tremendous freedom 
If you wanted to keep the Sabbath, keep it. I don't care. If you wanted to go through a ritualistic vow, go through it. Don't rest upon that for salvation, however. If you want to do it as unto the Lord, fine. But if you rest on it for salvation, you've got problems. That's what he said very often. There's great latitude, however. Some people will tell you that you need to worship on Saturday. They'll say, you mean you go to church on Sunday? Well, yeah. Oh, that's not the Sabbath. Since when did you change the Sabbath, man? You go to church on Saturday. God never changed it. You did. In fact, I've met some people who said, I was taking the mark of the beast because I worship God on Sunday instead of Saturday. Some people think you've got to go to church on Sunday. If you don't go to church on Sunday, and I was raised that way. You just slap God in the face and boy, are you walking a thin line. And so Paul writes, he said, one man esteems one day of the week over all the others. One man esteems all of the days of the week exactly the same. What's his conclusion? He says, let each one be persuaded in his own mind. Now, for me, Sunday is no more important than Saturday, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. I worship God every single day of my life. I read my Bible. I pray to Him. Yes, it's set apart. Sunday is the first day of the week. The early church gathered. It's the resurrection of Christ. But I esteem all the days the same. Now, you might think, well, I think you're wrong. I think Sunday is more important. Great. But let each one be persuaded in his own mind. And if you're into it, get into it. If you're not into it, fine. But just worship God. There's tremendous latitude, even when it comes to eating things. There was a group of people who were hung up about diet. Don't eat that meat, man. It's been sacrificed to an idol. And Paul said, you can eat it. It doesn't matter. An idol's nothing. But if you're going to offend somebody, then don't eat it. At least not in front of them. You don't want to offend them. There are black and white in the Scripture. And then there are those areas where it would fit into a shade of gray. And we need to apply biblical counsel and wisdom to those areas. But there is latitude. Peter ate kosher until he went to Antioch. And then he refused to do it. In fact, he got into trouble with Paul about that. But Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, Each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule that I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? Then he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? Then he shouldn't be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation in which he was when God called him. Now, that doesn't mean remain as a sinner, but remain in your orientation. If you're Jewish, fine. You can still go to the temple and the synagogue, even though you're a believer. But if you're not a Jew, don't try to be one. You're not one. The important thing is that you come to Christ and that you're obedient to him. Back in verse 22, James says, What then? We've got to come up with a solution. The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you've come. Therefore, do what we tell you. There's four men here who have taken a vow. The vow they are taking, by the way, is called a Nazarite vow. A vow of voluntary separation unto the Lord. If you want background about it, don't read it now, but go home and read Numbers chapter 6. That's what they were taking. They're in the middle of their days of taking the vow. It lasted 30 days. 
that they would take this vow. Well, there's four guys over here, Paul. They've taken this Jewish Old Testament vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they might shave their heads and that they may all know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we've already written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. There were thousands, or in this version, myriads of Jews in Jerusalem who believed. James was concerned that there be no division among them. Now, Paul didn't have to do this. Paul could have said, forget it, buddy. I know who I am in Christ. I don't have to take this stupid vow. I'm free in Christ. I'm Jewish, yes, but I don't have to prove anything to anyone. And he would have been right. He'd have been right in precept, but not in love and practice. And so he decided that he would humble himself to promote unity and take this vow. You know, sometimes you and I need to go the second mile. And abdicate our rights. How often we talk in this country about our rights. You don't have any rights unless God gave them to you. And if God gave them to you, sometimes God might call upon you to give them up. But we hear so much, it's my right. That's your right, sure. It was Paul's right to say no, but he said yes. And sometimes we're called to go the second mile so that we don't offend a brother if our testimony in going the second mile is going to help enhance the gospel of Christ to them. We don't want to do anything to hinder the testimony of Christ. Paul was not commanded to. Paul didn't do it because he'd be more saved than he was if he didn't do it. He did it because he wanted to win people to Christ. Listen to his philosophy, 1 Corinthians 9. Though I am free and I belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone. To win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew. To win the Jews. To those who are under the law, I become like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. So as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak. I become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Now, so many times churches split over absolutely stupid reasons. Insignificant. I mean, the carpet committee decides on a color of the carpet and another committee decides it's an ungodly color. And so this group fights about this, and it's just so petty. And the body of Christ today is split up into so many factions by insignificant little things that really aren't essential to our faith or walk in Jesus. They're just dumb. And it just proves, once again, how much we need Jesus. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attacks, excuse me, he attaches far more importance to godly intercourse and fellowship 
than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. Now, Paul had firm convictions that were unbendable in many cases, but then in other cases he was very flexible. There were certain things that were essential, and he wouldn't bend. You could get Paul to argue on things about the deity of Christ and the resurrection, he wouldn't bend. But then there were these insignificant things like meat sacrifice idols. Hey, don't offend your brother. You've got latitude in that area. Every one of you tonight has convictions. I hope you have firm convictions about many things. Some of you I know, and I know you have firm convictions about many things. You've shared them with me. And I've got firm convictions. But there is a high law, without sacrificing truth, there's a high law in the Christian body which says, I will mutually submit one to another in the fear of God. Though we disagree, and though I think I'm right, and you have the freedom to be wrong, Though because I love you, I won't make that little negotiable a huge issue that it would divide us as brothers and sisters from one another. And it's something we need to be guarded about. So in verse 27, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now I want to explain to you, just for your information and background, what a Nazarite vow was. To a Jew, if he wanted to thank God for some special thing God did in his life, some special blessing, he would take a vow of dedication or a Nazarite vow. And after he would complete the vow, they would signify him as holy unto the Lord. In fact, some Jews considered to be a Nazarite and to take the vow was one step under being a priest. It lasted for 30 days. During that time, you could have no grapes or any byproducts of grapes like wine or grape juice. You couldn't eat meat. You couldn't touch a corpse. You'd let your hair grow. You couldn't shave it for 30 days. And the last seven days of that vow were special. On the third and the seventh day at the end, you'd go through sprinkling. They'd put water on you from the ritualistic baths and you'd say certain prayers in the temple. And the last week, every single day, you would spend in the temple courts bringing sacrifices. Lamb, ram, doves, cakes, drink offering, and the like unto the Lord. And it was just, I don't have to do it, but Lord, I'm doing it because I love you. And I do it because you bless me and I want to dedicate myself more fully to you. Sort of like fasting, I suppose, in the New Testament. You just want to be dedicated to the Lord. You just want to display, Lord, I love you. I'm dedicated to you. I want to serve you. And so I separate myself for a period of time, a day, two, three, whatever, to just fast and be alone with you and to seek your face. At the end of that 30 days, the hair was cut. They became New Testament skinheads. They took all of the hair on top and on the face that they grew. They would cut it off and they would burn it before the altar in the temple at the time that they would offer the sacrifices with the priests. But in verse 27, as he was there with these guys, oh, by the way, it's very costly to take Nazarite vow because you would pay for offerings in the temple. You'd have to buy a ram. You'd have to buy lambs. You'd have to buy all of these things. It was very costly. And often wealthy people would subsidize it. Well, here's Paul. He just comes to Jerusalem. 
And they say, Paul, take four of these guys and pay their wages. Just to prove to your Jewish brethren that you love them. Paul consents to it. He's doing it with them. They lay hands on them. And as they do, they cry out, verse 28, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Immediately he took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and they put the soldiers and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Good thing. And the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitudes cried one thing and some cried another. And when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he had reached the stairs... He had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. Now, Paul was misunderstood. Obviously, the Jews in the temple, seeing Paul, were from Ephesus because they recognized this character by the name of Trophimus, who was from Ephesus. They had seen him wandering around the city with Paul. They saw Paul in the temple and they inferred, Paul has defiled the holy sanctuary. He didn't. They assumed it. They misunderstood him and they accused him and it caused a riot. In the temple in Jerusalem, as we've told you before, were courts, which select groups of people could hang out in. The big court was the court of the Gentiles. Anybody could go there. Beyond that was the court of the women. Jewish women could go there. Inside of that was the court of the men. Only Jewish men could go there. Around the court of the women, where only Jewish people could go, was a wall. And on the wall was a sign. And today I found exactly what that sign says. It says, no man of alien race is to enter within the balustrade and the fence that goes around this temple. And if anyone is taken in the act, let him know that he himself is to blame for the penalty of death that follows. Even the Romans took this so seriously that it was the only chance they gave the Jews at capital punishment. They had taken away their rights of capital punishment. But if a Jew or if a non-Jew was caught beyond that wall, they would allow the Jews to kill him on the spot. And so they saw Paul being a Jew. Beyond the court of the women, in the court of the men. They remembered Trophimus was in the city and they so they said, Men of Israel, help! And in great zeal to protect their holy religious site, they accuse Paul of bringing a Gentile into this area. This is the logic of misunderstanding and prejudice. I found something I wanted to share with you tonight, written by Alexander Pope. He said, It is with narrow-minded people as with narrow-necked bottles that the less that they have in them, the more noise they make pouring it out. I have seen it so often. 
Not much inside the individual at all. But what's inside, they let it explode out because they're narrow-minded. They've got the mindset of prejudice. They have the mindset of misunderstanding. They've taken and observed things and drawn wrong conclusions, and they just let it fizz out all over. Okay. In verse 37, As Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, Can I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Aren't you that Egyptian who some time ago raised an insurrection and led the 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no tiny city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. Next week, we'll go through chapter 22, and we'll probably cover some of the verses we just read. But I would like to close this evening by giving you what I've written down as an anatomy of misunderstanding. This is what happens when misunderstanding occurs. First of all, assumption replaces fact. Like these people in the temple... They assumed, because Paul was there, that he brought his Gentile friends and they hated Paul and they wanted to make a big stink. And so they assumed something that was in fact. Assumption replaces fact. And then, imaginations replace investigation. They won't go find out if it's true before they make the accusation. They'll just spew out the accusation, the misunderstanding. And because they have an evil eye... What I mean by that is they look with skepticism and bitterness and hatred. They will observe, and everything they observe will be tainted with some foul color. And so when it enters into their mind, it's not really the truth. It's an imagination. They haven't investigated it. Assumption replaces fact. Imagination replaces investigation. And finally, the result is exaggeration and an overreaction. That's what happened here. Listen to what Solomon said in Proverbs. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and a shame to him. Ever have somebody come up to you and give a side of the story and you jump to a conclusion, is that's right, blah, 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 blah. You're a fool. If you will believe one side of the story without making some kind of an investigation, either by another witness so that every word can be established or with the person himself, And when somebody likes to talk about other people, I will often want to know a source. And so I say, well, can I quote you on that? If I talk to that person, can I quote you as my source? No, don't take me into this. I didn't. You did. You opened your mouth, so you must be a source. And then Proverbs 14 says, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly couple lessons I want you to go home with. That even spiritual people get misunderstood. Like Paul. Like Jesus. And perhaps like you. Maybe you've been misunderstood. God, I've done everything right. Why would you let this happen? It happens to the best. And secondly, prayer, committing it to God, will change things. Now, I'm detracting a little bit from the text. But I started out talking about David. Remember David? David was misunderstood by Saul. He thought that David wanted to rip off the kingdom from him. And so he chases David. During that time, he writes several prayers and songs of worship unto the Lord. 
I mentioned and read one of them to you. But I want you to turn back now to Psalm 59. And let's read this as we close. Psalm 59. And in this we learn how to handle being misunderstood. I call it David's prayer for the pestered. Psalm 59. He begins by saying, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloodthirsty men. First thing I notice about David's prayer is it was definite and honest. It was not a cliche prayer. He did more than just say, O Lord, bless, lead, guide, and direct. Notice the strong words. Deliver, defend, deliver, save. He got right to the point. He rolled out his burden definitely before the Lord. Look at verse 11. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down. He's saying, Lord, don't, just don't kill them immediately. Let them suffer a while. And you can be glad that God sifts all of his, your prayers through his will, but that's gutsy praying. That's honest. That's how he felt. It doesn't mean it happened. It just means that's how he felt, and he was honest with God. In verse 3, For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. Not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord, they run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Second thing David does in his prayer is he searches his own heart. And as he searches his heart, he says, I'm innocent. I didn't ask for this job. A prophet anointed me. You were the one that slayed Goliath. I just had the faith in you. And now Saul's mad at me for obeying you. But it's not my fault, Lord. And I recognize it's not my fault. And it's uh, not for my transgression or for my sin, O Lord. Remember sometimes. If you're being hassled, it's not always because you're doing wrong. It could be because you're doing right. And you have an enemy. And then I want you to notice verse 5. He expresses his confidence in God. Awake to help me and behold, you therefore, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. At evening they return, they growl like a dog, they go around the city Indeed, they belch out with their mouth, swords are on their lips, for they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. O you, his strength, I will wait for you. For God is my defense. My merciful God shall come to meet me. God shall let me see the desires of my enemy. I don't know if you followed so far, but there's a definite progression in David's prayer. He begins sort of panicking. He goes, God, help, save, deliver. It's not my fault, it's their fault. Get them. Beat them up. But as he's rolling his burden over on the Lord, as he's delivering his concern to God, he expresses great confidence in God. He says, God is my defense. That's why David refused to lift his hand against God's anointed. Saul. He could have killed Saul. He says, I'm not going to do it. If God wants you dead, let him do it. But I won't do it. And in this prayer, this is where he gets that victory. God is my defense. Be merciful, my God, or my merciful God shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desires upon my enemies. And then finally, in verse 16, he ends up with rejoicing. 
I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, the God of my mercy. He sure ends that prayer a lot different than he began. I know that uh, you often hear when you come for counseling or a Christian is talking to you and you're in affliction, the last thing you may want to hear is, let's pray about it, brother. Oh, please, don't, don't tell me that another time or I'm going to hit you in the mouth. That's how you feel sometimes. It's because many of us don't really know the power that prayer has of releasing it over our anxieties into the Lord and having that replaced with peace. David ends this prayer in rejoicing and confidence. It's not how he began the prayer. Did the circumstances change at the end of his prayer? Not at all. Saul was still hunting him. Saul was still still jealous. And he misunderstood David. What changed? David changed. It is said prayer changes things. Oh, that's true. It changed for David eventually. But quickly... David changed. Prayer changes things, but prayer changes us. The circumstances didn't change for David at this point. But David did change as his perspective was brought. Hey, God's my defense. I'm misunderstood. It's not my fault. That's okay. God sees. God hears. God will take care of it. I'll trust God. It's not my problem what Saul thinks. I don't need to defend myself. I will roll my burden over on the Lord. And when I do, I'll do it honestly and I'll do it definitely. I'll search my heart to see if it's my fault. Well, it's not my fault. I'll express my confidence in the Lord. And he'll end up here with praise and thanksgiving. I guess it would be a great place to close by quoting to you the book of Habakkuk. Not all of it, but the end of it. God tells Habakkuk he's going to judge them. Habakkuk is mad at God. Doesn't understand why God would judge Israel with Babylon, a more wicked nation. But... Though he can't understand it, at the end, Habakkuk says, Though I see no outward provision at all, I will still jump for joy and rejoice in the God of my salvation. I can't see it. I don't see any provision. I see the land failing. But I'm going to trust in God. For God told me the just shall live by faith. You are misunderstood. I can't help you. I can just join you. But I know one who can help you. Jesus was misunderstood, and he can relate to you. And even the most spiritual people are deeply and greatly misunderstood. So you're in good company. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening after considering where Paul was misunderstood by Christian brethren and his enemies, all in the, in the same chapter, all in the same place, all in a matter of a couple of days. Lord Paul was able to stand behind what was true, yet he humbled himself. He humbled himself to take a vow that was not required of him, but he did it because he loved people enough to not stumble them or hinder their faith. I pray, Lord, that unity would be that important to us. I pray, Lord, that though we may have rights, that in certain cases we would choose to abdicate those rights and choose the pathway of love and go the second mile. And then, Father, we want to pray that in times where, like David or like Paul, 
we experience human misunderstanding and miscalculation, that we will be quick to come before you, before we even come to anybody else or tell anybody else or gossip about anybody, that we bring it to you. Lord, I pray that our prayers would be definite and honest, that in them we'd search our hearts. But Lord, I pray that we would experience in our communication with you a lifting of our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen.